British guns for Libya, but what does Egypt think? Baghdad, an increase in violence, a new missile for the F-35 stealth fighters, and fact or fiction, the former general who's put his worries about Russia into a novel. I'm hoping that this book is read by people with no interest in defence who read this and say, goodness me, blimey, is it that bad? United Kingdom is joining with the United States to put weapons into Libya. The plan is to support the United Nations recognised government of President Sarraj. But what appears to be a simple plan is complicated by the various independently motivated militia, plus the army led by Major General Khalifa Haftar. Watching all of this with more than passing interest is Egypt's President Sisi. Well, I'm joined by David D. Kirkpatrick in Cairo, a Middle East correspondent for the New York Times and Associate Fellow at Rusi and also our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio. Hello to both of you. Um, David, if the UN and most Western countries support the Fayyaz al-Saraj government, what is the problem exactly? Well, the, the problem is he heads a what's called a government of national accord and there is no national accord. Uh, the, his government is designed to bring together what had been two rival factions. Uh, neither one is fully on board with the government, both of which are still independently armed. And if you look more closely, uh, each of them is breaking down a little bit uh, within itself. So uh, in Tripoli, the capital, you increasingly have local militias vying with each other for power. Uh, the coalition that had run Tripoli is itself fracturing. And then if you look on the other end of the country, where General Khalifa Heftar operates what really is uh, a militia, which he has somewhat grandiosely titled the Libyan National Army, but really his personal militia, uh, it too is showing signs of splintering that may not have full control of all the different forces which are uh, ostensibly siding with it. So that's the, that's the issue, and that's the real problem. So you're going to arm the so-called government of national accord, uh, but who are you really arming, who are its troops, and what guarantee do you have that the weapons you provide to this government uh, will remain under its control? That was actually my next question. Um, what do you think will happen when you throw those weapons into the mix? Well, I think that might be premature. At this point, I think those weapons are kind of a carrot in a carrot and stick game. Uh, I, I think that what the Western powers are hoping to do is to say to all parties, whoever sides with us will get our support, including weapons. You mm -hmm. know, what the Western governments want to do is take on ISIS, which now controls some 120 miles of the Libyan coast. Uh, and in response to this uh, expression of interest and support, we are seeing both factions make a lot of noise about fighting ISIS. A, a year ago, they were each talking only about fighting each other. And now they are competing in uh, vows to take the battle to ISIS. Mm. Uh, that doesn't bring us any closer to unity, but it shows that they're, but that both sides are now posturing to get that Western support. Uh, given that Libya is currently awash in weapons uh, and that neither side seems unable uh, to win weapons from its respective foreign sponsors, I'm not sure the West is really, you know, the UK and the US are really going to be in a rush 
to actually bring more weapons to Libya. That feels like coals to Newcastle to me. Yeah, we, uh, but in, in the meantime, the offer has already had an effect on the ground. Yeah, and I mentioned earlier about the interest that Egypt's president Sisi has in all of this. Just tell us exactly what his position is. You know, his position actually may be a little bit uh, more complicated than you than you think. I mean, he uh, clearly the Egyptians uh, have an alliance with General Heftar. He's their guy. He's basically modeled himself on Sisi uh, and proposes himself as a, a sort of Sisi-style military strongman in Libya. But he hasn't been very effective. You know, he's been fry, trying for two years to take control of a single city, Benghazi, and he has not fully done so. Uh, there are signs that the Egyptians are losing a little bit of patience with him uh, and that they may be willing to support this government of national accord if it can do its job, you know, if it can, if it can control... Uh, the country. I mean, I, th I don't think that the Egyptians are squaring off against the West. Uh, I spoke recently to the, the foreign minister of the government allied with Haftar, uh, and he, he said that, uh, that the Egyptians were open to some kind of a unity government if, if we put together. Christopher, how do you see the developments this week regarding Libya? It's interesting with uh, uh, saying there, uh, as David said, about uh, Haftar, General Haftar is, uh, is losing it a bit. When he turned up really in, what, 2014, a couple of years ago. He had this much-proclaimed Operation Dignity running, or that's what it was going to be. And he was going to be the military strongman. Now, at the moment, there's only ever been one military strongman since 1969, and that was Gaddafi, quite frankly. But the way I see it is that uh, President Sisi, a military man, and always a military man, sees at the moment the only possibility of somebody who can actually bring something together, but not only that, command it as a soldier. Uh, whatever we might think of the political sport and the splits within it, Haftar is, is, is very much the soldier, now knows how to put a brigade together, knows how to put a regiment and where it all fits in, in threes together. And for the moment, uh, Sissy's money is on him. What, I've, what I would love to know is how far Kaftar thinks that he can go, and in fact does he see himself as the man who can actually put Libya together rather than uh, uh, Mr. Siraj. David, do you see it that way? Well, he, just this week, uh, Heftar gave an interview where he said very clearly that he doesn't, he considers the government of National Accord to exist only on paper, uh, and it has no real strength, and he bows to it in no respect. So he has absolutely dismissed the uh, the government national accord and Mr. Siraj, and is continuing on his own. And he still thinks he's the man to unite Libya. In fact, he's talking a big game about taking the fight to ISIS. Blah 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 blah. Hmm. There, there's no. I mean, whether he can actually do that remains to be seen. Uh, he is not the only uh, professional soldier in Libya or even in Benghazi. Uh, you know, there are other there are other former Qaddafi officers there who might at some point uh, stand up and try to take uh, the lead and may even appeal to CC in the terms that you're describing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, a, it, you know, it's a complicated matrix because uh, Heftar has also been receiving support from the United Arab Emirates, who are a sponsor of CC as well. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of a regional game. And the fact that Heftar has repeatedly declared, this is it, this month I'm finally going to take Benghazi and failed to do so, has definitely cost him some of his luster.
And David, given this complicated game you describe, what and the fact that you, you're not sure, you're saying you don't believe these weapons are necessarily going to be put into Libya immediately anyway, what do you think will be the next step? You know, that's a very, very good question. I mean, I think that the uh, I know the strategy. The strategy is carrots and sticks. You, they, they're, they're, the, the United States and the UK and the US are sanctioning individuals on either side who are uh, opposing the government of national accord and dragging their feet, uh, while at the same time holding out the promise of military cooperation for those who go along. And, and the idea is that this will allow them to put together a unified force uh, then with the help of American special forces and British special forces and French special forces, possibly Italian, will be able to effectively move on the Islamic State in its stronghold in cert. It's how they get there, you know, that's easier said than done. And I don't know what the exact next step will be. David, can I just a uh, very quick one for you? How uh, are organizations, you know, the, the militia like uh, Libya Dawn, Sh- Shield, Battalion 166 and people like that, are they still main players or are they just people on the sidelines yeah they're all still in the game you know the the they're all the uh, the libya dawn people have not gone away i mean some of them are now actively supporting the government of the national accord and some of them remain independent they have their own operations room operation dignity which is heftar's militia is still there so there, there's as i say nobody's put down their arms nobody's disappeared uh, if anything, they have fractured uh, more and more. So the government of national court, instead of replacing the two governments, has added a third, unfortunately. All right, David D. David D. Kirkpatrick, thank you for your time today. There we will leave it. Uh, It's David D. Kirkpatrick currently on sabbatical at Rusi. Dozens of people were killed this week in a series of bomb attacks in the Iraqi capital, Baghdad. Three of the bombs hit mainly Shia Muslim districts, while another hit a mixed Shia Sunni area. So-called Islamic State has said it carried out two of the attacks. Christopher, are we seeing an increase in violence in Baghdad or just the reporting of it? We are seeing quite a big increase in in, in violence, uh, suicide bombings. Um, And I think the reason for this is that uh, the Iraqi troops, as badly as organized as they sometimes have been, have started to gain ground. In other words, they've got not necessarily ISIS on the run, but they're finding it difficult. In some places, they have have pulled out. Um, The latest one is uh, uh, Rutbah, the Iraqis have taken Rutbar, and Rutbar is very important. Apart from anything else, it's a, just a small town on a dirt road on the way to Jordan, but it's also quite close to where they've been uh, trying to control a border crossing with, with, uh, into Syria. I think that what's happening is that the ISIS have lost probably about 30% of the territory which includes towns that they had mm. this time last year. And so they're going back to the old tactics of disruption by bombing the towns with suicide bombers. We've been talking a while about, about the uh, planned attempts to take back Mosul from ISIS. What do we know about that at the moment? Well, they've got a bit of it back. Uh, you see, when you take a town, you don't actually take the, the town itself. That's bad enough. You know, that's booby-trapped and the people in there. What you have to do is get the surrounding areas because uh, ISIS works as a military operation. So you've got a town. What you have is, say, four for organizations, sole military organizations, well outside the town, where you defend the approaches to that town. They've beaten off one of them, and they've got them on the run. Uh, I would have thought two or three weeks, because of weather, because of where they've got to, because of the fact they've had successes uh, in, in places like Hit, 
there's another important town, and in Rutbar, I think you will see the Iraqi forces making a bigger uh, attempt on And, on and this, this tactic you've been talking about, uh, returning to this tactic of these targets we've been talking about in Baghdad, what will they be wanting to achieve by uh, targeting mainly Shia areas? Uh, well, that is the complete disruption, you see, because I mean, what you have in, in, in don't forget, in, in Iraq... Um, you have, uh, if you like, a, a blood vengeance government still. Uh, so it's the idea to just create chaos. You create well, you create terrorism, uh, but also you start hitting areas uh, so that people can't live normally. When people can't live normally, they have to be protected. When you have to be protected, you're using you're using weapon, you're using manpower, and you've got one guy to protect something. You need five guys to back him up because you know he's in and out and gone everywhere. Mm. And so you have disrupted the whole thing. But the other thing is, you've got to show that you're doing something, and this is what ISIS is doing. At and the just moment. while we're talking about ISIS. Um, tell us about what Russia's been up to in Syria. Well, uh, do you remember the, all the stories about Palmyra, the, uh, the, the the ancient city? Never far from the news, has it been? Never far from the news, and the, the ISIS, built, ISIS built a lot of it up, uh, uh, blew a lot of it up, and in March of this year it was recaptured, and then people said, you know, it's in quite a good uh, uh, state. They have actually, actually found that the Russians are now going to build a helicopter base and a barracks there right on top of some of the antiquities. Abdul Karim, who is the archaeologist there, says they've just walked in, taken it over and says, we are concreting that over. Push off and go and have some lunch. Still to come, we hear how the new Spear Cap 3 missile will work from the people who make it and the general's work of fiction about the threat from Russia. The armed forces are continuing to suffer low morale, according to new official figures. The armed forces' continuous attitude survey suggests morale and satisfaction are worse than four years ago and are unchanged in the last year. Well, James Hurst has been looking at the figures and joins us now. James, what does it say exactly? Well, I mean, this is a, a huge document full of figures, but I think some of the, the, the key ones. So there were three questions about how people would rate morale, how they would rate their own morale, their unit's morale, and their service's morale. 40% said their morale was high, so 60% didn't have high morale, either neutral or low. That's unchanged on last year, unchanged on 2012. But if you go back to 2010, more than half said they had high morale. Uh, but people are far more pessimistic about those around them. Uh, just 22% rated the level of morale in their unit as high, and that's down 2% since 2012. Just 12% rated the morale of their service as a whole as high. That's down 3% on 2012. Now, I think, you know, we know that morale took a dip, uh, a, a big dip, uh, after the 2010 defence review, what this seems to suggest is that this is there is not a recovery in morale, even though a lot of that restructuring, you know, mostly it, it's done, all the redundancies are done. You know, there's a bit more money going into defence. As yet, that is not being reflected in people's morale. And how does this all compare across the three services? It, it's quite interesting. You look, you get all sorts of little graphs in there. Uh, the broad trend is, if you look uh, at 
the Royal Marines, they stand out as having uh, the highest morale and satisfaction uh, with the job. Uh, generally, it is the RAF who have the lowest morale, the lowest satisfaction. Although you look at it, it's very interesting. The Royal Navy, for example, uh, absolutely uh, respondents in the Royal Navy gave the lowest rating for what they felt as morale in their service as a whole. Yet, actually, when it came to job satisfaction, Royal Navy rated its rated their their job satisfaction the highest. So <laughs> that that perhaps gives you an indication uh, that that you know st- different statistics can tell different stories. Uh, but a couple of other interesting ones as well: um, decrease in satisfaction with service family accommodation uh, has fallen seven percentage points in the last year, so its satisfaction is only half. Also, I think people less satisfied with uh, their basic pay, that has fallen to about 35% satisfaction, perhaps reflecting, well, there's two possible reflections there. Number one, the continuing effect of capping of public sector pay rises, but possibly reflecting some of the pay restructuring that's just been uh, announced. Christopher's got a, a paper that he's looking at intently in front of him. Is, is that the survey, Christopher, or bus timetable? Actually, it's my, my lotto um, <laughs> that I'm just filling in. Hey, listen, let, quite seriously, um, let me tell you a few things about the services in this sense of the gap. And the gap is the point when you come out of warfare. Um, the army in particular in war... Uh, pulls together, likes it, that's what it's joined for, it's got tails, they've worked together uh, in a battlefield or on operation. And that is the way you can't get closer than that. When you come back and you're going into routines, routines which you perhaps don't like, you don't see the purpose of, the training is wrong, you haven't gone places you wanted to go, mm-hmm. that's when army gets uh, affected. Um, the Royal Navy, who get job satisfaction on a, on a big way, also have dissatisfaction, is the fact that spending far too, uh, far too long at sea, if you take the Type 45, for example, having to be re-engined, or certain ships being withdrawn from service, other people have got to spend spend more time at sea. They're also not going on the shore-based training courses mm. they've got to do. The Royal Marines, why should they be happy? Happy Because Royal Marines are happy. You look at how they select people for the Royal Marines. It is a specialised job. They become specialists. They become elitists. They continue to be elitists. The Royal Marines at the moment, for example, are deployed in 22 different operations yep. throughout the world. And, That's why, and the Royal Air Force? The Royal Air Force got such a specific task, high-tech task, quite a different sort of thing when it is not seen in operational terms that's and they're not advancing people are yep. not advancing in, 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 in the ranks that's the difference if you really want to know what happens at the end you look at not so much the, the, the numbers of troops and the numbers of RF naval personnel you look at the ones that are trained uh, and those trained figures will tell the full story and James I mean does the survey actually give any kind of explanation or is it just literally asking the questions uh, it is asking all questions. I, I mean, you know, you can interpret all, all, all sorts of ways. I think there's a couple of points, actually, that they highlight in their key points that, that perhaps tie in with a couple of things that Christopher says there. Um, among those who've put in their notice, uh, the impact of service life on family and personal life remains the top reason for leaving the armed forces. That is not new. But in 2016, more personnel are citing current job satisfaction as a reason for leaving than they used to in the past. It makes it the second most common reason for leaving and I think that does to an extent tie in with what what Christopher was saying about, you know, they're not being the war fighting in the army. 
All right, James Hurst, thank you for that. Well, a new £400 million deal has been announced to develop the next generation of missile for the F-35 stealth fighters. The Spear Cap 3 is designed to hit targets at a greater distance with far more accuracy than the current Brimstone. Well, here's Defence Procurement Minister Philip Dunn explaining why the MOD is buying it. Well, this provides a precision munition which can reach at some considerable range uh, from an aircraft which will allow the uh, F-35 pilot to be able to strike capability on the ground, whether moving or fixed, a whole variety of different target sets can be uh, reached with this weapon in all weather conditions. That will make it a unique weapon capability in air to ground, uh, which we think is exactly what our pilots need for the roles we envisage the plane playing. And with a few more technical details, here's Tom from the manufacturer's MBDA explaining how it works. In the constraints of the Joint Strike Fighter Bay, the missile has to have everything folded up, and this includes the fins. So on launch, the missile will be pushed away from the aircraft. The fins will then open all at once, control the missile, roll the missile over, the wings open, and then goes through the the sequence of starting the engine and conducting flight. The system will allow the Joint Strike Fighter operator to engage targets at longer ranges than he can today, ensuring that he's kept out of harm's way when he's engaging a hard target, such as an air defence unit, um, and not put his aircraft in harm's way. So, Christopher, when are we going to actually see these missiles on those F-35 stealth fighters? Probably about the, the earliest one, I expect, about, about 2020. 2022, um, I looked at these in, in, in some detail, or the, or the mock-ups of them, back at Farnborough uh, uh, two years ago now. Uh, first thing tells you everything about the name, Spear. You know, Spear uh, means... Stands for exactly what? A selective position effects at range. In other words, uh, what can you do at some considerable range? And the considerable range on this is about sort of between about 64 nautical miles or something, going up to about 100 kilometres. But put it in perspective, the difference between this and what's been used or has been used in the past, like the American small diameter bomb, the SDB, is this. These spears have turbojets. The others sort of float in, they, they cruise in. This, effectively, is an 80-kilogram cruise missile, and you've got 80 in a po- uh, eight of them in a pod beneath. And what you can do, as that sort of, uh, as that, the, the, the name tells you, you can go anywhere, you can see the target from any direction, you can be pointing the other way, and the target comes up, and the, and the missile will turn around and, 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 and go and get it. I think it's, 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 it's quite a remarkable weapon, because it's going to last for a long time. Tensions with Russia are escalating and are likely to get worse. That's the chilling warning from General Sir Richard Sheriff, former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. He's written a book setting out his ideas, but rather than a big academic tome, he's written a novel. So is it fact or fiction? James Hurst caught up with him at the launch. Well, the book tells the story of what happens when Russia invades the Baltic states in 2017 uh, and highlights what has led to that grim outcome, uh, the policy blunders, the failure to invest in defence, giving Russia an opportunity 
to seize the Baltic states in the pursuance of the president's strategic aim of rebuilding Russia as a great power. Uh, then it follows a small team, and you see the, the story played out between not only Washington, London, Brussels, NATO headquarters. You see the dynamic of how decisions are taken in the North Atlantic Council, uh, how NATO eventually forms a consensus, uh, and I'm not going to give anything away um, by saying what happens in terms of the outcome. But I just would make the point here that although that this is fact-based prediction, we are really on course for the most ghastly disaster unless and until the right deterrence is put in place. And I would stress that. This is not that it's too late to do anything about it. It's not. Do you want to see Britain putting troops either permanently or, or permanently rotating through the Baltic states? Absolutely. Britain is an important, a very important player in, in Europe. And more importantly, I mean, my background before I stepped down from the army was seven years in NATO. So I have, I've, I've, I've lived and breathed the multinational world of NATO and have many European and, and, and transatlantic American and Canadian friends from the NATO world. There is a respect for Britain's armed forces, a respect for Britain's soft power, diplomats, BBC World Service, British Council, you name it. And a, and, a, and a sadness in a way that Britain appears to be increasingly introspective and focusing in on itself rather than stepping up to the mark and supporting its friends and allies. So I would very much like to see Britain step forward. I think Britain is very well placed to do that. And don't forget, I mean, the Estonians have never forgotten, for example, that 1920, uh, the War of Liberation in 1920, the assistance and support they received from the Royal Navy. In fact, there's a memorial in, in Tallinn that recalls that. I mean, the, the subtitle, An Urgent Warning from Senior Military Command, but it's a work of fiction. If you want to deliver a warning, should that not really be done fully in the basis of, of, of facts and, and, and academic research? I've contributed in the last three months to at least two think tank reports by the Atlantic Council and the International Centre for Defence and Strategy based in Estonia. There are legions of think tank reports, but actually, apart from think tankers, who reads those reports? I'm hoping that this book is read by people with no interest in defence who read this and say, and say, goodness me, blimey, is it that bad? We need to do something about it. I think this is about getting defence and the importance of investing in defence onto the streets, as it were. Uh, so I'm keen that, you know, I hope... And by writing it as fiction... There's a story within it, yes, but there's a message about the importance of investing in defence properly. That was General Sir Richard Sheriff talking to James Hurst. Uh, so, Christopher, remember this one? It's 30 years since Top Gun was released at the cinema. The movie made a star of Tom Cruise, but also out of the US Navy Fighter Weapons School in Miramar in San Diego. It was reported in the Time magazine that producers paid the military a total of $1.8 million for the use of the real Navy, naval air station, real aircraft carriers, real planes, and the flying services of real pilots. Uh, sounds like a big advert for the American Navy, hey, Christopher? I thought it was EastEnders, actually, when I heard it first. <laughs> i tell you that it's interesting about this. Uh, why Top Gun 
for real started was because the because the Vietnam War. Uh, what was the purpose? And the, well, the Vietnam War because the pilots didn't have any idea how to do aerial combat. There wasn't the training for it. They were still thinking Second World War the, or Korean War. The other thing, if you remember, is it was the Navy started it. It was the Navy Top Gun stuff until they moved into Nevada when it was the Joint Services thing, which the British quite often went over and, and mopped up in. Mm. And the importance like- of it um, was that it was Navy because it was Vietnam. And a lot of those operations, air operations, were um, from aircraft carriers. They didn't have much of a air, big air force bases. That was very important. Same thing happened to the British when they went to the Falklands. No air, air bases. And, the and so is, the importance I mean, of the carriers. The film itself, I mean, it worked for military recruiters, didn't it? They packed themselves, they were packed, uh, cinemas were packed with people wanting to join up. I mean, it wasn't presumably the purpose of the film, was it? Listen, they wanted to join up simply because of Kelly McGillis, <laughs> who, 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 was, who was the squeeze, the romantic uh, in, in, bit, bit in, the, in the film. Mm. Uh, the rest of did it... Did you like the film? Uh, I don't, I'm not I don't sure think I, was... I watched a lot of it. No, I don't really? think I watched not a lot only, of it. Did you watch it at all? Uh, Ever? All the way through? I watched the bit and then when she fell in love with well, not the other the, guy... What about the car in it? I mean, that's what everyone else talks about if it's not the actual aircraft. What car? There was a nice car in it, wasn't there? She didn't have a nice car. No, there was a car and a motorbike. No, she turns up in a, no, a, a motorbike. No, producer's arguing me because she's a big fan, of course. But no, there was a, a nice car and a nice Did motorbike. Did you know <laughs> that Kelly McGillis was a great pool player? And that is all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFPS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFPS SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. The continuing search in the...